Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report. I'm your host, Vago Muradian. Welcome to the first of our monthly series on innovation and technology, brought to you in partnership with Clarion Defense in the lead up to the Apex Conference early next year in Washington, D.C. Over the course of the year, we'll be delving more deeply into how to better drive innovation and identify the impediments that hamper it. Later in the program, a panel discussion I moderated last week at the Hudson Institute that is also partnered with Clarion on a series of events leading to the big conference in January 2025. Before we get to that discussion, joining me is my good friend, Sally DeSwart. She is the Managing Director for Defense at Clarion that organizes some of the world's leading trade shows, including DSCI in London and Soft Week in Florida. Sally, it was great to see you last week in Washington and welcome to the program. Thank you, Vargo. It's great to see you too. Uh, it was uh, indeed um, a pleasure and very excited uh, for uh, this uh, series. As we've uh, explained, it's a countdown to the big uh, Apex conference uh, next January uh, in Washington. There's a role for big trade shows. You don't get any bigger than DSCI. That's always been a favorite of mine because it does bring together air, land, sea, space, cyber, you name it. But there's also a role for things that are very different like Apex, which is going to be different, what is it exactly and what is it that will make it different from all other trade shows or exhibitions or events? Yeah, you're absolutely right, Vargo. Obviously, there is a real place for trade shows and they've been running successfully for years that bring together the whole defence ecosystem um, and manage to meet many people's agendas. However, the thing about Apex, born out of customer research we did, there seemed to be a very distinct lack of focus on technology solutions for the commands that can actually solve near-term problems. Trade shows tend to be a longer burn. They take a long time to build up your networks. But Apex, the different format about Apex is it's really looking at immediate solutions that are required by our military commands. And, and one of the things that you're also doing is to set the conditions for something that's a little bit more interactive as opposed to just sort of sitting through a conference hall or going and just exchanging business cards on, on briefings, right? You're trying to do something that is going to be the untrade show, aren't you, in some respects? Absolutely. An untrade show is a great way to put it. It is definitely about starting that conversation now and keeping that conversation going and the cadence around the importance of this topic for the next 12 months. And then when we arrive at Apex, which will be in January 2025, we have the issues have been surfaced, the connections have been made, and at the event, it is about meaningful business connections and, and tangible outcomes. And you guys have actually gone so far as to think about how people will meet to try to facilitate the, the most uh, interesting and beneficial outcomes. Tell the audience a little bit about that. Absolutely. We've been looking at all the types of audience that are engaged in the conversation and making sure that when they come, they have a clear agenda. So when we attract technology companies, we will be inviting them to not only talk about their products, but also pitch their products. So give the industry an update. So it'll be quite dynamic, fast paced. We also will be talking to OEMs and integrators about their role that they're playing in finding these solutions. And obviously the military commands will be there stating what their vision is, what their needs and requirements are. 
So Apex won't be an event that has hundreds of thousands of people walking around in a serendipitous way. It will be a very focused group of people who have got outcomes and need to meet each other. And the environment will be created so that it will facilitate those meetings um, easily. I also think that it's fascinating that you guys are going right down to what the meeting spaces look like. You know, everything is catered uh, for, so you don't necessarily have to be going out and eating. You're going to create all of these centers where people can actually rub together, right? I mean, the, the goal will be to get almost everybody who's at this event to actually uh, have touch points among everybody, right? So that it's not just, you know, you go to the sandwich bar and, you know, you're on one end of the exhibit hall or the other, but that you're creating these kind of um, uh, mixing points, if you will. Absolutely. Everybody in the room will be part of the conversation. And as they're part, a relevant part of the conversation, they need everybody needs free access to everyone. So the untrade show part of it is there's not delegates and exhibitors and all that, you know, old school ten, terminology. We really are. You're in the room because you have a part to play in this conversation. And therefore, as you said, Vargo, there will be lots of meeting spaces, breakout spaces, workshop areas. Um, Everybody will eat together, everyone will drink together. Um, and it's just a day where you can focus on doing business with who you need to do business with when you see them, not not constrained by agendas and um, various other sort of time frames and meeting requirements. You know, Sally, I think that's uh, a, just a fantastic idea because ultimately the most rewarding events are the ones where you have those uh, connections that you make and you come out of it and saying like, wow, that. You know, Sally was utterly fascinating, was terrific engaging with with Ben. It was, uh, you know, uh, you know, I didn't know this Grant guy. He's really, really interesting at the end of the day. Uh, and, and so that, you know, there's a lot of behind the scenes engineering, I guess, that goes along with that. Talk to us a little bit. Um, we're running a little bit short on time, but some of uh, the topics that we're going to cover. Right. I mean, at, 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 uh, we're at a point in the wake of uh, Russia's war on Ukraine, you know, concerns in the Indo-Pacific, new tensions in the Middle East uh, that, you know, I mean, to quote Winston Churchill, um, you know, we've got to think our way through some of these uh, uh, problems or paraphrase Winston Churchill. Um, what are some of the topics that we you want the group to be addressing right at the end of the day? I know that Hudson is going to be working on this. I know we're going to be working on this. But what do you think some of the key topics are going to be that you want to see aired uh, at Apex next year? I think because of the the focus on the conversation at the moment about the need for the for the near term solutions, I think the topics that we need to cover there are a lot. There's a lot around this topic in terms of unpacking what the regulatory control is, mindset and culture, um, vendor lock, all the issues that we hear industry saying are slowing down progress. These are the conversations that we want to be having in the lead up to it to the event, and then when we're at the event, we want people to really understand what technology um, solutions are required. And therefore, we can be talking about what we're bringing to the table that will really make a meaningful difference. Uh, and let me ask you one uh, last question, which is um, where can folks go uh, either uh, to get involved or to get more information? Well, this is a launch event. So we have um, got a website called apexevents.org. And if you go there, you can register your interest. And then obviously we will be in touch um, to talk to you about what you're actually looking to get out of the show. So yes, if you can visit apex 
events.org and then we will be in touch with you and then we're, we're looking forward to building up this narrative as we go forward for the next 12 months. Sally, thanks very much. We're looking forward to be part of that uh, journey. It's very, very exciting. Uh, and I think that this is going to be something very different uh, and also very uh, interesting. Thanks so very much. Uh, break a leg and look forward to having you back on regularly with updates. Lovely. Thanks, Fargo. Last week, Brian Clark of the Hudson Institute hosted a fascinating conference, Solving Operational Problems with Today's Technology, where I moderated a panel discussion. Here's our conversation. It's a tremendous panel uh, here, uh, and I'm honored to be having uh, this conversation with a man uh, uh, who is helping drive that innovative process, uh, and and then a whole bunch of companies, uh, whether they're on the AI side, whether they're hardware and software side, or the secret sauce side, uh, and at various stages in their journey uh, through the deep valley uh, of death. Uh, that man is Dr. Rev Jones, uh, who is uh, the services warfighting applications lead for Stitches, mercifully short for System of Systems Technology Integration Tool for Heterogeneous Electronic Systems. Uh, he was at DARPA where uh, the idea was uh, born, and we had an opportunity to talk, and now he's in the Air Force trying to make the magic happen. Sham Senkar, uh, the Chief Technology Officer at Palantir, and somebody with whom I've had uh, some of uh, the most fascinating conversations on how to drive this process forward, and somebody who had numerous near-death experiences <laughs> going, through the, going through the valley. Uh, Colin uh, Carroll, who is uh, strategy and growth uh, at Anderl uh, Industries and somebody who's a former Marine uh, who learned a, two, a thing or two about innovation under fire. So uh, you guys know that uh, routine. And Dr. Wes Naylor, uh, an old friend. He's a retired United States Navy captain, naval aviation legend, and he's now the CEO of Helicon uh, Chemical. Uh, and by the way, everybody knows Palantir. Everybody knows Anderl. Everybody ought to know Helicon. Uh, because at a time when we're really trying to stretch out the range of our weapons, they have a proprietary uh, University of Central Florida uh, chemistry department binder uh, that can make solid rocket uh, weapons uh, with increased range for the same exact weapon body. Uh, and I think that's exactly the kind of thing that we need up to 30% more range at a time when we're doing this. So gentlemen, welcome. Uh, it's, it's great to uh, have you all here. Rev, uh, start us off, right? You're at the nexus of this uh, better integrate the force, better stitch it together as, as it will. There's a technological piece of this and then there's a cultural piece. I'm going to get to the cultural piece where it's going to sound more like Festivus uh, than, uh, than a think tank event. But first give us this sense on the technological piece because you are actually trying to achieve what it is that we say we want to do, which is to better interconnect the existing force and give it those kind of capabilities that are better suited for the future. I'm the, the Department of Air Force uh, Program Manager for, for Stitches. Um, and, and what that is, is, is a technology we created at DARPA um, so that you could realize the goal of how do you actually um, create and deploy architectures. And that, that's a complex word uh, that, that means different things to different folks. But the collection of things that perform a function. Um, how, do you, how do you deploy a force that's not only connected, but behaves the way that you expect it to, that, uh, that you can apply all your tactics, techniques, and procedures, and then change? Uh, the, the key to what we did and what we created is the, the, the scale that we can change from one day or one week to the other. We've actually outstripped the capability to adapt ourselves to that, uh, that process. Uh, and that's some of the, the, the uh, not only the technological challenge, but the socio-technological uh, technological challenge. Um, and uh, walk us through the cultural part of this, because oftentimes in our system, we say we want innovation, we're calling for innovation, we keep talking about innovation, and yet those who might actually most 
most benefit from innovation are like, eh. I mean, it's a little bit like General Brown said, you can open the cage, some people will go bolting out, others can be coaxed out, but then actually a number don't wanna leave the cage at all, in which case nat natural selection presumably takes care of that. But I mean, where are you in the cultural adoption of this as you're trying to field this kind of capability and get it into the hands of the warfighter? How's that working? Sure, individuals want innovation, orgs do not. Or organizations are uh, organisms in and of itself. Um, of all the different possible definitions of, uh, of innovation, uh, many of them are uh, creating something new, creating a new function, creating new value, and redistributing redistrib uh, the, uh, the, the, the uh, I guess, the funds and the value that you have. Um, uh, when, when you start to, to pick which one of the definitions you want, it always comes down to, we wanna make what we have better, and how can we do that, which really gets rid of all the innovative parts of innovation. So how do you then create uh, or, or can you trans transform um, an existing organization to be innovative, to constantly reevaluate itself of do, uh, the products that I produce now, when am I going to kill them because they don't actually do what they want uh, and still be left with the people to do that innovation? Uh, that's extremely hard. Uh, uh, just over the, the course of the last 60 or 70 years, uh, the Air Force was created the arm, uh, out of the Army for some of that cultural. Uh, arguably, the Space Force was created out of the Air, the Air Force. Um, uh, Admiral uh, Rickover uh, created an innovation, innovation, uh, innovation organization uh, and really focused on uh, hiring the people uh, that could continue that, uh, that, uh, that innovation uh, leadership that he supplied. Um, but to require innovation, Man, you really can't do that. You have to have the organization and groups of people uh, um, within an org that, uh, that, that, uh, that allows that to be done. And a charter that gives uh, that, uh, that organization the bounds uh, to be within rather than requiring somebody else's opinion or requirements, same thing, um, uh, to tell you what to do. If an organization can't uh, decide what it, uh, what it needs to do, it has very little innovation capability. I'm going to turn to the three of you and kind of go across some of the lessons you guys have learned uh, and how it is uh, that we need to think about where we are and the appetite of the department of, uh, to change. Uh, I think, Sham, you've been looking at this from a higher level for probably uh, a little bit longer and somebody who did have multiple near-death experiences as you were going through this process. Um, what are some of the things that lessons that you've learned in that process that should sort of suggest to us where we stand right now? Uh, in, in this effort to try to maximize the amount of power we can feel because you know even at $886 billion, it's not nearly enough money to do all the things that we need to do. So then we talk about things like legacy force or relevant force. The vast amount of the force isn't gonna change. The things that actually change are what you do, you do, you do. Let me, let me build on the dialectic that's essentially been proposed between adoption and innovation and uh, the, the struggle between those two, because that's, that's something we really started off in the very beginning. And we conceived of this role of what has now become a more commonplace term, but the forward deployed engineer, not the engineer who's making the product, but you can actually kind of think about it as the engineer who's working on adoption. How do I engineer adoption? It's not just cultural, it's not just social, it is those things, but there's more to it. And you have this dissonance, and, and by the way, this is true whether it's a commercial institution, you're trying to help Airbus change how they make airplanes, or it's a government organization where if you can't answer the question of why is the user's life better for using this, not because it's the right thing to do, not because it's moving the organization forward, but how is my very narrow, I just wanna go home at 5 p.m. You know, how, do I apply to, how do I appeal to the most base sort of need that this person has? And as a consequence of doing 
the easy thing, I'm doing the right thing. That's where the engineering really comes in. And uh, there's an old saying in the valley that, you know, there's the first 80% of solving the problem, and there's the second 80%. And I think we give a lot of short shrift to uh, technology adoption as a skill unto itself. I, I'm working on, on this piece where I have another proposal to Tyler Cohen's um, theories around the great stagnation. And I think uh, what really happened is technology in the 70s essentially got to the point where it became complex and sophisticated enough that we thought we were just going to divide, you know, divide and conquer. We're going to just chop up technology into little blocks that you can buy. And just simply by buying the right tech, your company was somehow going to get better. Uh, but but you know, it, it turns out that you lose a lot when you, when you chop these things up and you're not holding yourself accountable to solving the whole problem. So I, I wish there was an easy answer to this bit, but I think what we're kind of missing is the rigorous focus on engineering the adoption into this. And then I, I think um, in some sense, we double down on that. When, when you make acquisition separate and apart from the warfighters, you're, you're kind of doubling down on making this problem super hard and telling people it's not your problem to think about adoption or it's not your problem to think about innovation when, when we need to bring it all back together. Colin, uh, you, yeah, I mean, your, your take on this as somebody who both wore the uniform yeah. and is now on the industry side of things and was in the department for a little while as well in between there. Yeah, I think actually like merging the two things you were just said here, right? So uh, well, first off, people are, are everything. And second off, adoption is everything. But what does that actually mean? That, you know, I've been a, uh, a user of technology. I used Palantir's technology, for example. I've been a until Oco ran out, and that was the end of that. Yeah, you know, I, yeah, I left the Marine Corps. I came back five years later, and there was no more Palantir anywhere. And I wonder what happened. And Oco had run out, and that's how they were funding it. Um, I've been a buyer of technology. I've been a developer of technology on both the, the government side and at a UARC, and then also now out in industry. And like when it comes to adoption, basically, I see the adoption happening in, in all across all of those different sets of people. But probably the, the scariest one isn't the user, right? Users tend to adopt things pretty quickly. As long as you incentivize them properly, um, maybe they're lazy, they want to go home at five. Maybe they just, you know, they need to kill the Houthi drone, so they're going to shoot the thing they have, which might not be the, the most economical thing to shoot. Uh, but really on the program side, so the buyer side, like that's where I see the, the biggest problem. I think the, the department shifted over the last five years. There are definitely some like bright lights and some like shining examples of programs that have done, at least tried to do it right at the program level. It's not the R&D level, but the procurement level. Um, but that's like, that's like turning the Titanic. And uh, I think there are some experiments that are out there, like separating s software from hardware or you know, potentially bringing in like a software company as a prime and subbing hardware to them. And we're going to see how those experiments turn out. Uh, but I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to go as well as the program, like the government program team is able to execute it. Industries out here just trying to do their best. So that's where I kind of see the, like, as we get in three years, how some of these experiments have turned out. Well, I mean, we're, uh, you know, I mean, there are so many experiments at the end of the day. Uh, and I, I think there's something to be said for what Secretary Kendall says, which is we've experimented at this point. We sort of know what it is we need to do at this point. We need to be actually focused on uh, driving that capability into the, in, into the hands of the warfighter. Wes, uh, from your uh, standpoint, uh, th this is uh, a little bit like the Odyssey, where it's sort of an endless thing. The gods keep throwing challenges in your way, and you're going to wash up alone, naked, back at, in, in Ithaca somewhere. Um, you know, walk us through the challenges you're seeing it and you're living it, right? I mean, one is 
Palantir's made it through the Valley of Death and has a ladder that it's throwing to folks to pull them up. Mm -hmm. You got, you know, Andrew looks like it's going to succeed going through the Valley of Death, whereas you're sort of on the, on, in, the in the bottom of the scorching valley. Well, yeah, wow. Being roasted <laughs> well, like oh, a chestnut. Hopefully I'm getting a tan at least while I'm down at the bottom of the scorching valley. <laughs> You know, it, it's fascinating because if you look at the challenges that we're trying to address for the warfighter, I think, you know, at the highest level and the grossest level, sorry for this level of simplification, but we're dealing with information autonomy and range. Those three are probably the three biggest challenges that we're trying to tackle in order to empower the warfighter. But when you try to bring innovation in, in that, it's touched on so well, but it's the ability of the department and the acquisition communities to consume that in a way that aligns with innovation. You know, at Helicon, we're bringing what we refer to as an open architecture for energetics approach. But the building's never consumed energetics in that way. It's been a part of a specific weapon system and qualified into that one system. Certainly the ask for software and everything else is open architecture. Well, okay, what if we can bring a material science solution to bear? And because it's around a core component that's in all these different weapon systems, you substitute that one component and improve performance across all those. Fantastic, that's what we're looking for. How does the department consume that? Because each one of those programs has a program manager and a budget line and a, you know, a spin-in uh, plan for technology and how do you line those all across? That's what makes it so difficult for them to actually consume it inside the acquisition system because it's pointed at systems, not capabilities, that can go across multiple systems. And you know, I would certainly argue, and you know, I've been a part of this on both sides of the fence, that we don't need any, frankly, everybody would like more money, but there's money there, and we don't need any more authorities. It's the blocking and tackling of the traditional ways that we need to conquer. The authorities are there in the OTA authorities, it's have we created additional capacity, and I would argue no, because we focused that around um, when the policies first came out, Ms. Lord directed very specifically, you didn't have to be a contracting officer to be an agreements officer. And there's a, there's a capacity issue in contracting officers. Program managers are responsible for cost schedule and performance. If I could change one thing, one line of policy guidance, it would say all PEOs and program managers are agreements officers. They're responsible for cost schedule performance. If they get to the end of the line in a year, the money can't be executed because of capacity inside of the acquisition system. They can execute that authority. The money gets spent. The money gets to the innovators. Capitol Hill is happy because the money gets executed. And the warfighter's happy because the product's getting moved along. So, you know, it's cultural, it's systemic, but the authorities are there if we use them. I want to double click on the systemic part there because something that Wes said really resonated, which is in my experience, all of the value accretes in the seams between teams. As an innovator, as a disruptor, when you're trying to go disrupt something, the, the parts that are always least well served are the seams between the teams. Wes is attacking a massive seam that is accumulated across the breadth of the department. And how is he supposed to go after that? Of course, it's, it's so almost structurally the reason the dialectic exists between innovation and adoption. It, it is because that contradiction is the only place value can actually be at a scale that's worth harvesting in a disruptive way rather than within the program. Well, I would also point out, right, the, the, uh, another sin in the breakup of AT&L 
was actually creating another gap and seam between the, uh, the uh, research and engineering side of things and then the acquisition and sustainment. And, and then all of a sudden, you know, there are very important marbles that can fall between those two organizations. I think, I think so Andrew also does a, you know, energetics. Uh, I think that actually a large part of the innovation problem is when people think innovation, they think like some low TRL, like brand new technology, when the reality is most of the time, like what Andrew's doing or what you're talking about is, hey, there's a missile out there and we want to take it. It's a legacy thing. It's not the shiny object of the sixth gen thing that we're building right now where all the R&D money's going. The program office is just literally responsible to like sustain it and just keep chugging them out. But we're saying, hey, we want to modify that. The prime that owns it has zero incentive, zero incentive to like change it at all. Right. There are a couple places in the department that have the charter to repurpose legacy things and like try and get, get more out of them. Like on the whole, innovation's not really seen that way. Innovation is like the new thing. How do we get the new thing? Right. Uh, you know, from Andrew's perspective, we look at it and say, how can we take commercially available stuff and like integrate it in a way that we can do it way cheaper, way faster, way better than the current prime is doing it? Like that, in my mind, is innovation, but like I don't think you'll see DOD people define innovation that way. I, I, think, I think Lung Aquilino is perfectly fine with a fourth generation system that can hit somebody farther away than they can hit them now uh, and in, in larger uh, quantities. Uh, Rev, let me uh, come back to you, right? If, as you're looking at this, how is the model changing from the standpoint of somebody who's now sitting in the department, right? I mean, in terms of being able to be innovative, having the power to pull ideas, do you, do you have more empowerment now to be able to sort of reach out uh, and to say, hey, uh, you know, th this company has a capability I need, that company has a capability I need, and to be able to sort of build it toward that goal of being able to better integrate. So uh, there, there's, there's a, a lot of empowerment inside the DOD. Uh, individuals are empowerment, uh, empowered uh, quite well, uh, but, but they have a bounds to which they're empowered. You said a phenomenal word, the seams. Uh, the, the, the program that the work DARPA brought over um, fundamentally um, integrated a certain amount of seams within the DOD. Electronic systems, how do you do that? You have a seam that has yet, as far as I know, yet to be identified that that seam exists. Mm -hmm. um, you, you have something that, uh, that could be used, but nobody's actually applied that. What, what I lack, and certainly what I think you lack too, um, is an organization that is in charge of those seams. Um, seams are natural, sorry, boundary conditions for, for any of these uh, organizations, all organizations, um, are, are essentially created by funding. Um, you, where your funding runs out, what your description is, you run out. It works for companies, works for DOD organizations. So natural seams are created. Um, CDAO, OSD CDAO um, is, is frankly one of those organizations, if not the only one, um, that has the ability and, and is chartered to have that ability to, to fix the seams. They have CGIT2, um, obviously Advana's in there as well. Uh, and, and again, the, the technology that we created, developed um, uh, to transition, um, didn't fall into one of those orgs that, that's, that's, that's for those seams. Um, that's, that's the biggest challenge. People are empowered, uh, but unless you're part of an organization that can fix the things that you're able to fix, um, you're not going to have much effect. Um, Wes, let me ask you, because you're going through this process, it, it, you're having to reinvent the wheel at almost every point, right? There is no one test you do. The Navy has to test it, the Air Force has to test it. There might be another organization that you're bringing it to and they're like, well, those days, you know, I have to do my own. How, how do we need to actually make this a little bit more sensible where common results, and I think this applies to everybody over here, applies to you as the user as well, that you could just be like, hey, this is the certified thing. This is what I have demonstrated. 
instead of having to demonstrate, and then, you know what I mean, you have to be entrepreneurial at every level of this organization to sell it to each damn office, instead of, and, and then have the seniors go, what, we haven't adopted this yet? Right, and again, I would sit there and say, you know, the, all the authorities necessary to do this are there, but it takes a little bit of thinking about, you know, between OT and say mid-tier acquisition authorities, we have sat there and we go weapon system by weapon system. Okay, if we're going to upgrade AMRAM, well, we have to go to the AMRAM and test it in that and raise it to TRL-9 within that system, and then we want to do Javelin. Well, okay, then we have to go to that program office and do it. What if you took like a mid-tier acquisition approach with other uh, transactional authorities and said, you know what, we're going to put in place not a program because you know, that has all the caveats around that, but rapid improvement for air and surface weapons. And you qualify what we do, a binder as a substitute for an existing binder that is ubiquitous throughout all of it. And then instead of having to go to each program office, DOD and the program offices can come to this one project, prototype it through the small business in partnership with the OEM instead of having to do alpha contracting with an OEM and boiling it down to the small business. And we can qualify it rapidly and then the OEM can bid it out and do the expansion on recapitalizing Stinger, for instance. You know, perfect use case for us. You know, we've burned through 17 years of inventory. We've got to start the lineup again. We want 10% more range out of that in the same form factor. Lowest risk technology move you could do. Upgrade the binder, get more range out of it. Don't have to change launchers or anything else, but the process doesn't work that way. But it could. All those authorities exist. You just have to take a different turn on how this has always been done. So you need it's individual heroics still at this point. You need somebody to take those authorities and say, I'm going to lean out there and get this done because the benefit to industry and the benefit to the warfighter is worth it. Dr. Jones. I think what you said is, is phenomenally <laughs> like perfect. Uh, what I mean by that, um, or what, what, what I think you mean by that. And we're done here. I'm out. Innovation can and does occur when you have the one or two champions in an organization that 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 allows that human um, to to take what you have or any, anybody up here has uh, and go achieve with it. Usually, it's outside the bounds of what that organization can do, but they're afforded that uh, that ability to go do it. They, they run it. It's it's a lot of extra time in their part. It has nothing to do with their normal daily job. Uh, and the, finding those champions uh, is extremely key. Uh, the problem is we don't we don't uh, solicit champions. You have to go find them. You have to you have to retire and then go do that. Um, that's difficult and that's not sustainable. It's not scalable. Um, so how we do that is uh, uh, the, our next choices over the next uh, months to a year. Um, that that's extremely important. Well, Colin was the first to mention it. Like you know, people really do matter here. And so I think one one of this kind of subtext of, of both Wes and, and uh, Reverend's comments is that you know, it's, it's not sustainable and it, and it isn't. But I think that's maybe the nature of the thing, which is like, are, do we, are we over-lionizing process and not celebrating and encouraging enough these kind of maverick people who are going to take the weight of doing these things upon them? Well, but it's called leadership. It's leadership. Leadership matters. And I think seams are a natural, like you have, you have boundaries somewhere. You know, if we're going to, if we're, which by the way, I think this is a good idea to take these PEOs and turn them more capability focused. You're going to reduce a lot of seams. It's going to create a lot of flexibility. There are going to be other seams in other places. It is actually the job of a leader to manage those seams. If value is getting lost in those seams, 
there's only one place where blame kind of sits for that. And, and we need to turn our attention away from, we, we're kind of letting people off the hook by, by essentially saying like, look, the process, we need, you know, he's, the process is there, the authorities are there, the mechanism's there. We need the leadership to go crush these things. I, I just want to point out our British uh, allies have a portfolio approach to some of these systems, which actually was designed to get rid of those gaps and seams uh, and put things into more, somewhat more logical buckets as opposed to having them in the individual bean jars. Um, Colin, did you want to add anything yeah, I mean, to this? Just generally, you know, I've got a couple rules that I teach everybody. One, if you're a growth person, you got to find a, a requirement with funding. That's typically how industry looks at stuff. My, my third thing is, and an enlightened program manager. And to be honest, like at the you know, 03, 04, 05 level, like the product manager roles under the PEOs, like, they're not super enlightened people out there. They, they, they get taught something at DAU, they go through their acquisition course in a service, they haven't really experienced anything. And you don't mean so, that in a bad way. No, I'm just saying like they don't have the experience. But what I've discovered is actually former DARPA PMs that get recycled back in the services and go to a PEL, those people are, are like gold. But not everyone winds up there. They not end up all getting of them. out. No. <laughs> yeah. No. So I mean, I just I think like that. You know, I I benefited from a, in the in my buyer experience. I worked for a guy named Drew Kukor on Project Maven. He's an acquisition guy. He's out now. He retired. But like he was, in my opinion, the definition of an a leader acquirer. Most of the acquisitions people, if you talk, if you, like, hey, are you guys leaders? Like they look at you like, what are you talking about? I'm I'm an acquisitions guy. They don't view themselves as like leading the way. Some do, but on the whole, 99% of them don't. The leadership, the GOs, the, the users, Aquilino, Paparo, yeah, they're leaders. They really want it. But like that's not translated down to the guy that's just, hey, I just want to do something and ensure I don't get fired, which um, is the typical you know, acquisitions. How do we, uh, this does sound like a grossly self-serving question on my part as we embark on a, a year-long series uh, on, the, on this. Thank you, Sally. Uh, what, how do we have to change the conversation on this? Uh, and kind of go across uh, the line uh, w with you guys because I mean I've been covering this innovation thing for a long time uh, and it's like the same kind of conversations is it is the ground a little bit more fertile now yes are there more people who are saying empowered yes it's great to have CQ Browns that say hey go out there uh, and accelerate change otherwise you're gonna lose it's it's great to have other leaders in the department doing that how do we need to change this conversation you know, and, and whoever wants, wants to start this off and kind of go across the line. I don't want to be beating a dead horse here because, you know, I threw this out here as a solution, but I think it goes right to the point. So you're never going to get to a culture of innovation until you move past individual heroics being necessary to get there. Right. But if we want leaders, you also have to fully empower them with the tools. You know, I go back to, it sounds so simplistic, but this could be the most impactful thing, in my view, being a former program manager, that we could do. And it's simple. Program managers responsible for cost schedule and performance. How many people on this stage have been with a program manager? Gosh, I would love to do that, but contracts can't get it done for 18 months, so you're going to have to go fallow on this. And we'll pick it up if the next NDAA and appropriation bill gets. By which point you're dead. By which point, a small business, you know, that's catastrophic. You know, we are leaning out there with the little IRAD, we have and everything. It's not that it's any easier for the big programs. They're just doing it with larger monies or big companies. But if you're going to say to the program manager or the PO, you're responsible for cost schedule and performance, give him that tool that he can make an agreement that puts money where it needs to get in the hands of the innovators instead of it 
not getting expended, and you lose a year's cycle time. You know, yes, leaders will lead if you give them the tools to fully execute, because it does, it lets them off the hook. Yeah, I tried, but you know, contracts was booked up, legal didn't get to the review. At the end of the day, that guy can write the one page agreement and move the money to the need, then you've really enabled success. Yeah, I like. I agree that uh, nothing should be based on individual heroics, but I also live in reality. And like in the next five years, barring some major change to the FAR or you know, Congress taking action at Title X, like we're going to be in the system we're in. So I, things like the DISIG that we talked about earlier today, like that actually, um, it is an individual heroic effort by the Deputy Secretary of Defense, let's be honest, which is not the first time a Deputy Secretary of Defense has done an individually heroic effort. Uh, Maven was basically started from an individual heroic effort from Bob Work. Uh, I think that that is a DMAG level resourcing process. The Defense Innovation Steering Group happens to focus on autonomy things right now. It could be focused on you know, munitions the next round. Maybe they, they, they expand out and they say, we're going to do three things next time, five things the time after that, right? I think that DIU, uh, you know, a large part of the problem he's talking about is there's a program office that's like stuck in Detroit at you know, ACC. Detroit Arsenal, and it's like the guy went home for, for Thanksgiving break and doesn't come back until 2 February, and that's the contracting officer. Like, we're just not going to get your contract done. Industry can go to them and say, hey, let's work the contract through something like DIU. There's rapid prototyping. There's already program offices. It got funding that's got a requirement that can like rapidly transition that to production. I think like if I had the keys for the day, I would make, I don't know, 20 acquisitions people in every service every year like do a detail to DIU for a year. Most of the DIU people are actually reserve officers on orders, which means they get off orders and they go back to whatever they were doing, and like the department loses that talent. Correct. If we could rotate acquisitions people in, like you'd see a different, and then send them back to wherever they came from, you'd see a different, uh, I think you'd learn a lot faster. Same with DARPA, but DARPA's got very specific criteria for who they're bringing in. Well, they're special. You know? <laughs> Well, I, I think um, Wes's idea is a good one. It kind of addresses the supply side of how do we get the contracting going. I'd have a suggestion on the demand side, which is we need, you know, we often talk about the need for more competition. I think we need more competition amongst the PMs. Like what is going to get a PM to move faster, to decide to look at a requirement more critically, to weight them differently, to accelerate delivery to the warfighter? We talk about China as a pacing threat, but I, for outside of things that like the DEPSEC DEF is doing, it's really not changing anyone's schedule of fielding things. Correct. Um, the things that will change someone else's schedule is another brave American two doors down from you who is competing against you to deliver something better against the same thing. People always throw a resource up as a reason you can't do this. I'm not sure that's true. When, we, when we've had multiple competing programs in the past, we've actually spent less resource because we're more efficient, we're more aggressive, we're, we're trying to make things cheaper to, to, to have our slice of the competition win. And if we believe in capitalism, that what has powered American prosperity, this is profoundly missing in, in how the monopsony works today. And DIU's process is four vendors, five vendors, do a bake off for six months or a year. Everybody benefits from that. And the costs get, get stay way down. 
Competition also works in the DOD phenomenally well. Um, uh, frankly, a view from my opinion from within um, is if, if we want to actually create this end to, no kidding, end-to-end -end chain of, uh, of what do I need, not require, a, a, a specific need, how do we get those things? You need uh, an example, at least in the Air Force, um, uh, like a composite wing like we used to have, except, except of in, not individual different aircraft, but the end-to-end -end from uh, contracting officer, program management, uh, the, the, the folks that actually can create uh, TTPs, and the folks that can actually go employ rapidly changing TTPs. Right. Um, that that entire composite uh, um, uh, idea, um, uh, having at least two or three of those will get people to compete between those so you don't have um, one construct that, uh, uh, that scales, you have three that compete with each other to scale that way. Okay, how, um, I'm trying to find an elegant way of putting this. Um, I mean, to, to what extent is it about shooting people? and rewarding people, right? I mean, uh, the, the whole thing is a little bit like Maslow's hierarchy, right? Rewards and, and you want more of it. What we have a tendency of doing is, you know, Sham in industry or uh, uh, Colin, you know, you guys get rewarded because, you know, you're delivering. So you get more responsibility, you took the risk, you got rewarded, you get promoted. As a general rule in the military, sometimes you do take the risk and you end up getting shot, right? I mean, let's put it that way. Uh, or we assign somebody who's like a fast burner and you say, we want you to take this, and then your career derails and dead ends, right? So everybody looks at that and goes, well, I don't want to be that guy or gal, right? How do we have to, and, and, and maybe start with you on the government side of things, what does that reward equation need to look like, that empowerment uh, equation uh, need to look like? Because we talk a pretty good game about that. We do assign some people, but all of a sudden they're you know, career dog-legged and it ends as a one-star or an 06, you know, as a colonel, you, know, you might make it up to two-star and then people are just like, oh yeah, you don't, you don't wanna be that, that person. I mean, how does this have to change so at least speaking from my, my time in ops, uh, obviously my opinion of why I believe these, these composite wings are phenomenally perfect for that, uh, is that, uh, that what incentivized me always is not letting the person left of me or right of me down. Um, it wasn't about my promotion or my, uh, what am I gonna achieve? It's how do I not F up uh, the wingman or the flight lead that's leading this or following me along, uh, which, which, which I, I think is a general trait in ops. Uh, what I've observed is that the more and more people that are connected with that all along the end-to-end -end chain uh, that can not only believe in the mission but participate in the mission, you get that same incentive. So no longer is a carrot and stick um, uh, approach. Uh, it's literally just about the mission, and that's where you get esprit de corps from. When, as soon as you start to incentivize that type of behavior, um, you actually get the results that you're looking for. Colin? Yeah, I mean, incentivize warfighter success. And that might be restructuring PEOs around capabilities where you bring warfighters in. It sounds like it's kind of the, the wing thing you're talking about. I'm not sure, you know, services can probably do some of that internally without having to rely on anyone telling them how to do it. But yeah, if the warfighter is judging you as an acquirer, like that's the right place you need to be in. But that is not really the case in a lot of places. The warfighter is very removed from the buyer. You're a uh, 2007 Naval Academy, am I right about that? Right, so at what point does this need to be in the military curriculum a lot earlier as opposed to a lot later? Because honestly, in a lot of places, nobody, you know, it's, it's sort of like PR training, which you should be getting early in your career to understand like messaging, because the number one obligation of any leader is communication. Do you need to have some earlier coursework as this, as, as somebody who went to a military academy and then yeah, I don't know. I didn't know anything about acquisitions. I, I'd say in the Marine Corps. I'm not necessarily saying acquisition. Corps. Yeah, I mean, the process is pretty, it's a, 
it would add a year to like really get good at it if you wanted to add that in. Right. Um, and most people would, would never actually wind up in that path. Every service does it differently for acquisitions. Um, I think it's more just, it's, it's ensuring that the warfighter and the buyer are like very co-located and aligned. And that and the buyer's uh, uh, the grading is not based on, hey, I awarded the contract, it was on cost of deliverables, but more on like, did I field something useful and did the right. user you know, qualify it properly? Yeah. Really quickly, Sean, and then Wes, and we'll open it up uh, for a question or two before we part. We've talked about in the past how, mm -hmm. I, you know, my, my theory on the, the greatest consequence of the Last Supper was that the department stopped having to deal with founders. And one thing that's unique about a startup is it's more of a cult than a company. And that's where you get this esprit de corps. That's where you, they are optimizing on something that is more metaphysical. Uh, and you can recreate that. Like what, what I hear with Reverend saying, like that sort of mission alignment comes from something like this. Uh, so exactly. Um, and I, I think that there's, there's something really profound in how we re, how, how it, it can't be about career. Like even thinking about the, the rewards and incentives around career, you've already missed the cult-like aspect that's required to organize around the problem in very creative ways and put the outcome above oneself, which is what the cult does. You uh, know you're sitting next to Jim Jones, right? Yeah, I mean, I, it's just <laughs> Talking about cults. Kool-Aid? Yeah, <laughs> well done. Uh, you know, you, you throw a lot out there. And, have, and having run a warfare center and you know, a lot of great Americans there, one of the biggest misnomers I dealt with was the concept that you put out there of, you know, boy, uh, I don't want to put my neck out there because if I put my neck out there, I'm going to get fired, I'm going to get my head lopped off. And I used to talk to my team about this all the time. I said, you know, I've, I've been in the Navy at that point in time, you know, over 25 years. I've never seen anyone get fired for trying to do the right thing for the warfighter. You violate contract law, you violate ethical law, you violate uh, something that's codified. Yeah, you, you might get fired. But if you lean out there to try to deliver for the warfighter so that they come home from that deployment and get to have that wonderful reunion with their family like I did on my last deployment home where, you know, you're coming off the plane, you're hugging your wife and kids, you're never going to get fired for that. But there's that misnomer in the culture. And that's what we have to kill is that idea of if you put yourself out there and you're doing it for the right reasons, somehow you're gonna suffer for that career-wise. You have to make it about the mission and to get people to buy into that, you have to demonstrate that you're going to reward people who put the warfighter first. So, might sound a bit preachy, but you know, I think that's, I think that's ground truth. That's what gets it done. Uh, in, in, indeed, any uh, questions from Please identify yourself uh, and ask away. Hi, my name is Eric. Uh, I run a small technology company. We're in the Valley of Death. I'm with you on that. And before <laughs> this, I was an infantry officer for 12 years. Um, I find myself thinking a lot about uh, why the department has, a, has trouble innovating. And we talk a lot about um, seams. Uh, um, that's one. Uh, there's a reverence for warfighter requirements. And, and I know from my time in the government that no one there is omniscient. So I'm wondering, um, can we ever really achieve true scaled innovation um, if, the, if there's no way for the department to adopt things that no one thought they needed? 
And I, I reference like all the examples in the consumer tech world of, of really sticky technology that no one was saying, I need this thing. Or in the government, you could think about like Microsoft Office. I don't think the DOD ever said, I need Microsoft Office, but it is ubiquitous. Um, I'm just interested in your, in your thoughts about that kind of technology and that, how it gets entered into uh, the Warfighters toolkit. I, I'll just throw this one out here, and it's, you know, it's a it's, it's core mantra that if you don't have a requirement, you can't spend a dollar on. Okay, you've got needs, and needs aren't necessarily requirements, okay? But requirements are tied to a 50-year-old PPBE cycle. If you can't free up money that can be reprogrammed in the budgeting year or year of execution, you're never going to be able to get to innovation. You know, whether that's by making a portfolio instead of a program so the leaders have uh, ability to see a, a need come in from the warfighter and then reprioritize resources to get your thing to the warfighter, yeah, you can never get there. So you have to have the money and, again, be willing to grant the authority and autonomy for that leader who can put those two together because, hey, we're, we're all great Americans. We all want to do things, but we've got employees. We've got to buy materials. You've got to get us the money in order for us to do the work. I mean, it's really pretty simple. So we've got to have the power to move the money. I don't want to, I think the answer to your question is no. If, if, if you're tied, if you're stuck to the requirement thing, you can't, you're stuck, you're done. But people seem to do it despite that. They seem to work their way around it. And what we're, the broad arc of the conversation is, can we work around it better? How can we do it faster? How can, how can we be, um, and I, I think when you are out there in the commercial world, it is so competitive, you wake up every day getting punched in the face. And, and there's not a single commercial customer where there's not some incumbent system, there's not some incumbent program who's threatened by this disruption that's coming. And you, you do have to fight it out there still. You know, and I think if, if companies were as rigid, where, where funding was tied to requirements, companies would be dying off, right? There's kind of a, um, a, an evolutionary fitness in terms of how they approach it. And they're far from perfect. You know, evolution is not a theory of perfection, it's a theory of like minimal survivability of, of, of fitness there. Uh, and I think we should, we should be importing a little bit more of that here. It's not possible to know. It's just not possible for anyone in any industry to know ex ante all the needs that you're going to have. Needs emerge. And we should expect as technology continues to accelerate here that the needs emerge faster and faster. And so then your ability to adapt to the unknown needs and your agility to program around that really matters. Yeah, I, mean, I also think there is a massive amount of bullshittery that surrounds requirements, okay? You could be a lot more practical and a lot faster in terms of how you do this. We did it in World War II where we sort of stuck with what are the ones we really need and what are the ones you trade off and, and everything is, you know, yeah, doesn't I mean, have just, to be. Just real quickly, generally, right, in the commercial space, the buyer has the requirement. So you want an iPhone, you spend your money, you get an iPhone. I had a Nokia yet, now I have an iPhone. I had a Blackberry, now I have an iPhone. There is sticky stuff. I remember the first time that I heard about Palantir. I was a Marine Intel officer, and I'm still technically in the reserve, but I'm a Marine Intel officer, and I'm like going in 29 Palms, and my guys are like, hey, this is an infantry battalion. They're like, hey, just wait till you get Palantir, because I was bitching about whatever Excel spreadsheet, like Google or thing. I was like, what the hell is Palantir? And we showed up in Afghanistan, and my Palantir FSR rolls up, and he's like, here's your laptop. Like, sit down, I need an hour with you. And I just remember thinking, oh my God, like, this is the thing I need. I didn't even, couldn't even describe the requirement to anybody, but this is the thing I need. The right. problem is that the buyers of that were, it was OCA funding, so like CENTCOM or whoever, the task force just bought that and like provided it down to everybody. And when that OCO money went away, it went back to, hey, the requirement guy developed the requirement two years ago, and now the buyer is going to feel it three years from now, and the user's finally going to get it. By that point, they have a new requirement, a new need. 
So it's, there's a way to do it. We'll be in conflict again. OCO money will flow and like things will change. A requirement officer, if you would have brought him this, would look at you and say, I don't know what I'm going to do with that. As opposed to figuring out like, oh no, it's going to change every single thing you do in your life. Different, different ball game. You're going to get a faster horse. Yes, you're going to get a faster horse and it could only come in one color. Mm -hmm. uh, one more question. Uh, thank you, uh, Michael from the Boyd Institute, uh, Accelerating Solutions at Technology and Policy. Um, one thing I didn't hear that I'm curious if it's even a topic is, uh, you know, the enemy gets a vote. Um, the techno acceleration on the other side is going quite quickly. And I'm really excited that we're working on innovation at all these different levels. But, you know, today we, we learned even more information about, you know, in the Red Sea with the Iranians fielding a drone carrier, uh, which would totally change the game. And so I'm just curious, like, to what extent can you leverage and catalyze those kind of events to accelerate what you're talking about? Um, thank you. If I could jump in there, I'll say, you know, hey, two years ago, three years ago, nobody was talking about energetics. Nobody was talking about the domestic capacity to build rocket engines to uh, field everything. Hey, you know, Ukraine got a vote. We burned through 17 years of inventory. It created a need. So. You know, we are, and we're adapting that. But what did we find out when we did that? We've been neglecting that infrastructure base for 20 years. And there'd been no improvement in the materials either. So I look at it from my seat and go, okay, this is an inflection moment. Not only do we have to recap everything, but this is a chance to spin in a new technology because those all have to be requalified. Can I get DOD to catch up with me in that idea? That's my challenge. Anybody else want to take a bite of that? I mean, I think you're seeing it with the Houthis right now, which is everyone's sick of shooting SM2s and SM6s at $10,000 drones. And so, but the user is incentivized to keep doing that because they don't want to get blown up, right? They're, they're measured on, did any get through? So they're just going to keep using the thing that they've got. But I think that what you're going to see over the next, like, it's going to be a year, but there will be other, other capabilities to get fielded that, you know, ANS is like rapidly trying to field right now. I see, uh, actually your two questions are, are almost uh, synonymous. Um, the, the, I, I usually talk about uh, the, the adversary actually sets the requirements, we don't. Um, everything else is an operational need. Uh, I, I don't know of, I'm sure there are, but I don't know of any requirements in Ukraine. Um, yet, uh, like the deputy DIU director uh, said earlier, um, every three months they're, they're refreshing technology. That, that can't happen in a requirement cycle. That's an operational need cycle. <coughs> How do I deploy quickly when my inventory just doesn't run out, but it changes because you had to change to it. Um, I, 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 don't, I think that we're about ready to, we're, we're on the precipice to actually uh, reform uh, the, the DOD or at least key parts of it to achieve both of those. Uh, it, it hasn't been written down on what that looks like, but but there's enough uh, an, an, there's, there's enough folks leaning forward to achieve that. It's just an undefined uh, organization or a set of organizations. Chum, did you have a last? Well, one? I would just say, like I think, when we're in a true state of emergency, we're able to throw the rules out the window, elevate content, organize around it. For the things that are happening in the world today, we're just below that threshold. Uh, you know, it's it's not an attack on the homeland. It's not at a place where we're ready to react the way that America really does react. Uh, and I think we've been kind of slow. Ukraine probably should have been, regardless of how you feel about it politically, it should have been our lend-lease moment. Look at the rate of production that the Ukrainians <laughs> have had to take on themselves. Instead of thinking about how are we using it to pull back our energetics, to pull back the industrial base, we gave a bunch of Cold War era kit over. We haven't pressure tested any of the investments that our PEOs have made in the last five, 10 years against those threats. We could have been fielding, learning, iterating, getting into something more like an operational needs loop. 
uh, refining, being, being ready to, to, to outbeat the adversary across many theaters, not just, not just Europe, but we're not, we're not activated. We don't view it as a national emergency. Uh, to invoke the late great Admiral uh, Art uh, Zabrowski, you, you have to look at it as a measure of, is it good enough? Is it X percent better as opposed to it being 100 percent better? And if it's X percent better, adopt it, implement it. And as the Ukrainians are doing it, it'll be OBE in a month and a half. And you've got to go to the next uh, generation of capability. Everybody, thanks very, very much. Really appreciate it. Brian, thanks, uh, honor uh, to be working with you on this. And Sally, thank you very much uh, as well. I'm looking forward to the series. Thank you.